Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. A welcome development in the use of fur as a product is that many fashion brands and apparel companies have discontinued its use, and their announcements seem to be coming ever more frequently. But not surprisingly, there is still a lot of suffering going on and a lot of work to be done. Born for USA has just published a report on fur farms in Europe, and to tell us about it, I'm very pleased to welcome the acting CEO of Born for USA, Angela Grimes. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having Born for USA and me on the show. What is this report, and why did you conduct the study? This report is an assessment of what is happening in Europe regarding the laws on fur farming. And there are countries who have completely banned fur farming, which is fantastic, which means that in those countries, no animals are suffering for the sake of fashion. There are other countries with, with some regulations, and there are some with no regulations. So we looked into how that plays out across Europe. And then we want to take that and look at how that, what that impacts in the United States and how we can take those kinds of laws here in our own country. So how did you obtain the data and score the performance of the various countries? That data was obtained through really basic research on the laws and the regulations in each state. And it, it, it involved quite a bit of translation and a lot of research and data analysis. And what our staff did was rank each country based on the, the types of regulations and the type of, type of laws that they had. So, if you are a country like Luxembourg, who, who has a complete ban on fur farming, you get an A-plus rating. <laughs> and, and if you are a country that has welfare standards, you might get a, you know, a ranking based on whether that includes stacking cages, the veterinary care, the type of welfare that has happened. And we ranked each country based on the type of welfare that they provided to the animals. Is most of the fur obtained from farms? A good part of the fur that is used in fashion comes from fur farms. And that is because it can be highly controlled. And sadly, the, the killing methods are ones in which will retain the, the better part of the pelt, which can then be sold onto to the, the fashion industry. Uh, in the United States, we do have trapping uh, that contributes to the, the fashion industry, but fur farming is the large proportion of what, what fuels the fashion industry. And it's sort of a benign term, but it's really a nasty business, isn't it? It is a nasty business. What you have are animals who are packed shoulder to shoulder in crates. And, and when crates are stacked one atop another, you have the feces of one animal following, falling into the crate below. You have animals who are living in their own filth, animals who have no space to, to, to roam, to walk, to climb, to do any of their natural, instinctual, you know, behaviors. 
Uh, you have animals who are confined and they cannot move. They are simply there as a commodity to be raised, bred, and then killed for the fur that they wear. Yeah. And they need to wear it, not us. So which countries scored the best? Well, the, the countries that are... Uh, best in score would be the ones that have absolutely complete fur, you know, fur bands or are deciding to phase out fur because phasing out is an important part of the process. Uh, not everyone can come in with a ban outright day one. So sometimes it takes those, in, those in, incremental changes to make sure that it can happen. So, for example, the United Kingdom, Austria, Croatia, Macedonia, and Slovenia have instituted in bans on fur farming. They're, they're done with that. Other countries are working towards phasing them out. Um, Germany, for example, has a partial fur farm ban in four of its states. So kind of like the United States, it has to work you know, within its, its own federal system. So these countries that are a sort of second tier, is there anything we can do in North America to help uh, push that along? In North America and in the United States in particular, what we need to do is reduce the demand. Quit buying fur. And, and that doesn't just mean full-length mink coats. That means any little sweater with a collar of fur trim. It's simply don't supply, you know, don't, don't be the, the one who fuels the, the demand for fur. And in the United States, what we can do is start looking to our own governments and our state governments to really start working on, on local and, and state bans on the fur farming industry itself here in the United States. Okay, so we do have a fur farming industry here. Tell us a little about that. We do have a fur farming industry here in the United States. Unfortunately, it is not regulated. Uh, it, is, it is very slowly regulated by the federal government, but mostly it falls to the state. The patchwork of state laws makes it very difficult to find out exactly what is happening in Idaho or Iowa or Michigan or Texas or any other state we have to investigate here in the United States what those regulations are state by state. And what we need to do is work state by state to start banning fur farming in various locations, state by state. It seems to me that's a really great opportunity for legislators and for animal welfare groups to push a little harder. You don't really see a lot of that. It is a great opportunity for local activists to, to start talking to their state legislators and, and start that conversation. And not only to work towards a total fur farm ban, but to work for transparency. What is happening? What are the fur farms in the state? Where are they located? What kind of welfare are they providing to the animals there? And then start that, start opening the door and start shedding a light on what is happening so that we can actually work towards improving those welfare welfare standards and eventually 
banning fur farming altogether. What is the impact of a big brand like, say, Michael Kors going fur free? The impact of Michael Kors, Gucci, uh, Burberry, who who recently announced a phasing out of fur, that is a huge impact. Those kinds of major fashion houses, major designers with social media following and and massive fan following, when they decide to go fur free, that that has a huge impact on the industry. It has a huge impact on on the following of the general public because when they see icons like Michael Kors who have decided to take a stance against using fur in their collections, the public follows those icons and those role models. And with Born Free USA, the Fur Free Alliance that we work with globally, we encourage those kinds of major retailers and major designers and fashion houses to come out and say that because they are leaders and and people follow leaders. Does Born for USA have a position on employing direct action methods like breaking into farms and liberating animals or obtaining undercover videos? You have a position on that? Born for USA works on a level of education and advocacy. We want to inform the public we want to work with legislators. We want to work with state and local governments to ban these kinds of practices. And we want to talk to the people and convince them that fur is not fashion. Compassion is fashion. So what we are out there doing is educating the public and working with our legislators and our lawmakers to make it so that these kinds of fur farms and this kind of industry no longer exists. I would encourage the public to investigate the kind of fashion that they are purchasing, making sure that it is it does not contain fur, and to help spread the word that fur is never in fashion. Compassion is always mm. in fashion. So let me just follow up. Is it hard to know if a particular garment contains fur or we... Or is that information pretty easy to find? You have to check labels. Uh, there have been new statutes in place that require labeling, but sometimes there are instances where incidental, incidental fur does not have to be labeled, although those laws are changing here in the United States and throughout. And uh, any websites you'd like to direct listeners to to learn more? I would direct them to bornfreeusa.org, look at our Fur Free uh, Fashion Alliance website and our Fur Free European Report. Angela, I want to thank you very much for telling us about your research and this report and for joining us on the show today. Thank you very much, Peter. It was great to be here. More with animals today after this break. Hey, it's Dr. Lori. You're listening to Animals Today, now celebrating a decade of weekly broadcasts. 
Each show, we bring you news about animals from around the world, descriptions about the challenges they face, and ideas on how each of us can help create a more compassionate world. We are proud to have had government leaders on Animals Today to advocate for animals, including U.S. Representative from California, Ted Lieu, U.S. Representative from Pennsylvania, Tom Marino, California Assemblymember Richard Bloom, and others. We really appreciate our elected officials who work on behalf of animals, and we thank you. So make sure to join us each week right here on AnimalsTodayRadio.com or on iTunes because we are your home for serious talk about animals. And if your leaders in government deserve praise or criticism, let us know. And thanks for listening. holidays are here and we want to remind you of a few things that you can do to keep your dogs and cats safe and happy this season. First, make sure the Christmas tree is secure and cannot fall over and that tree ornaments, which can be eaten, are out of reach. And make sure the tree's water, which can get overgrown with bacteria, is covered so no one will drink it. Holiday plants like holly, mistletoe, and poinsettias are toxic to pets. And be especially careful with lilies, which can cause kidney failure in cats if ingested. Electrical wires should be covered or out of reach. And use extra care with candles, or avoid using them at all. Cats love to play with and eat tinsel, which can lead to intestinal problems and even surgery. So we suggest avoiding tinsel altogether. Don't let your pets eat chocolate, alcohol, table scraps, or anything sweetened with xylitol. And of course, don't give them or let them eat any bones, which can splinter and lodge in the throat or block the intestines. And remember, the holidays can be very stressful for your companion animals. So make sure your dogs and cats have a nice quiet place they can retreat to, away from your guests, so they can rest and sleep in peace. So happy holidays from everyone at Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's www.aianimals.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. Hey, Peter. Lori, hey. Peter Wallet Hub took an in-depth look at 2017's most pet-friendly cities. Wallet Hub's analysts compared the animal friendliness of the 100 largest cities across 21 key metrics. That's right. And they looked at three major areas or dimensions. One was the pet budget, two was pet health and wellness, and a third was outdoor pet friendliness. And within these three groups, there were many subgroups and there were various weightings given to these areas. So for instance, in a pet budget, that was worth 25 out of 100 points on their scoring system and items such as veterinary care costs or dog insurance premium. And then under the pet health and wellness dimension, which accounted for half of the survey, items such as the number of veterinarians per capita, or the pet businesses per capita, pet-friendly restaurants per capita, we're interested in that, share of pet-friendly hotels, pet meetup groups per capita, and items such as those. And in the outdoor pet-friendliness dimension, which covered 25% of the survey results, items included dog parks per capita, walk score, pet-friendly trails per capita, and a few other items. So that's how they acquired the data, and the results are pretty interesting, aren't they? Did you look at them? I glanced at them. Oh, I was going to quiz you on them. 
My memory's not so good. Okay. What cities would you think fall in the most pet-friendly cities? Most pet-friendly. I would say most pet-friendly city would top be Austin, Cal- Austin, Texas. Yep. Number seven. Seven. Of the top ten, yeah. Mm-hmm. What else? Uh, okay. Uh, pet-friendly Tucson? No. No. Uh, I told you my memory's not so good. How but about... There's, an, there's two others in Arizona. Really? Oh, I, I, oh, you're cueing me now. Um, okay. I saw Phoenix and Scottsdale. Yeah, that's right. Scottsdale, number one. Yeah. Phoenix, number two. You know, it's just so hot so much of the year, so that's got to be a negative, don't you think? I guess not. Well, the city must compensate in other ways, right? Okay, right. Maybe there's like one vet for every two households or something like that. Right, really right. the score up. Well, number three was Tampa, Florida. Wait, that was one and two? Yeah, number one, Scottsdale. Number two, Phoenix. Oh. Number three, Tampa, Florida. Yep. Number four, San Diego. I can imagine that, right? Okay. Number five, Orlando. Number six, Birmingham, Alabama. Number seven, Austin, Texas. Eight, Cincinnati. Nine, Atlanta, Georgia. And ten, Las mm. Vegas, Nevada. And then the least pet-friendly cities within this hundred, so the bottom 10, right? Yep. You want to take a guess? You want number 91 or number 100? (laughs) How about number 100? No, 100. Uh, Akron. Newark, New Jersey. Newark, okay. Yeah. Also in that bottom 10 of least pet-friendly cities, Charlotte, Anchorage, Philadelphia, Buffalo, Santa Ana, California, Boston, New York, Honolulu, Baltimore, and like I said, number 100 was New York, New Jersey. Hmm. Okay, there's more interesting data in this survey, and the first one has to do with veterinary care costs. And if they're, I guess if they're lower, that would help your score in this survey. So where are the lowest veterinary care costs? Those cities are Columbus, Stockton, Corpus Christi, Bakersfield, and Birmingham. And the highest veterinary care costs, the highest, are Washington, D.C., New York, Newark. Newark. Newark's coming up a lot. Yeah. Portland and, and Charlotte. Mm. Okay. The other, here's another interesting comparison. Lowest dog insurance premium. That's interesting. I wouldn't have thought that there are regional differences in dog insurance, but obviously there are. The lowest dog insurance premiums, St. Paul and Indianapolis. And the highest dog insurance premiums come in New York City, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, Irvine and San Diego. Those cities are twice as expensive as the cheapest cities for dog insurance. Okay, here's the veterinarians per capita. The most vets per capita, which is purported to be a good thing, Miami, Miami, Florida, Lexington, Las Vegas, Orlando, and Cincinnati, and the fewest veterinarians per capita, Newark, Jersey City, Laredo, Texas, Boston, and Santa Ana. Wow, Newark is really not so good, is it? No. Most pet businesses per capita, also ranked as a positive, San Francisco, San Diego, New York, Las Vegas, and Seattle, and the least pet businesses. It's like the same, almost the same list. Laredo, Texas, Newark, Detroit, Irving, Texas, and Garland, Texas. Okay, most pet-friendly restaurants per capita. Tied for first place is Orlando, Scottsdale, Atlanta, Honolulu, and also on the list, San Francisco. Pet-friendly, where you can bring your well-behaved pooch in. To the restaurant? Yep. Fewest pet-friendly restaurants, Omaha, Nebraska, not pet-friendly, Toledo, North Las Vegas, San Bernardino, and Detroit. Most dog parks per capita. Where are there most dog parks per human capita 
has to be some city in California. Well, here's the list. They were all tied. San Francisco, Portland, Las Vegas, New York. Wow. Henderson, Nevada, and Boise. Mm. And the fewest dog parks are places like Hialeah, Florida, Lubbock, Texas, Newark, New Jersey, Santa Ana. You know what I mean. And finally, most animal shelters per capita. I don't know whether this should be a good or a bad thing, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But which cities have the most animal shelters per capita? Chicago, Atlanta, San Diego, Denver, and St. Louis. And the fewest animal shelters per capita? Lexington, Newark, Jersey City, Laredo, Texas, and Detroit. So where do we want to move? We don't want to move to Newark, but how about Phoenix or Scottsdale? Okay. I'm good with that. Okay. All right. Now, how do you think our dogs would do in one of those pet-friendly restaurants? They would not settle. No. They would grab food off everyone's plate. And, I know. I don't know how and any dog. It. I don't know how any dog can be calm with all those smells everywhere. Yeah. You know? oh. Now you see these people with their dogs, and they're just sitting there patiently. Yeah. Something wrong with these dogs. Hi, it's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and today's Animals Today fun facts are about octopuses. Did you know the oldest octopus fossil was from an animal that lived 296 million years ago? And you can see that fossil at the Field Museum in Chicago. Octopuses have three hearts, one of which supplies blood to the organs, and the other two work to supply the gills. And their blood is a blue color, which transports oxygen better at cold temperatures and in low oxygen waters. And there are your Animals Today fun facts for today. Every day in our community, countless animals are starved, beaten, and abused by people. And sadly, most of these cases go unreported, and the abusers get away with it. And in many cases, someone knew about the abuse, but did not report it. So if you see someone hurting an animal, or even if you just suspect something, call the police or animal control right away. Animal abuse does not just mean physically abusing an animal. Neglecting animals can be just as bad. So if you see your neighbor's dog being underfed, left without water, or tied up in the backyard without protection from the elements, it is important to report that too. In many cases, you don't even have to give your name, and your phone call may save an animal's life. Also, we know that many violent and abusive adults got their start by first abusing animals. It's true, people who harm animals often turn their violence against other people, and that is a cycle we need to break. Remember, animals can't speak out for themselves, so reporting animal abuse can save lives. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. I'm pleased to welcome Jennifer Skiff to the show. She is a journalist, book author, spokesperson, animal advocate, and much more. And her new book is titled Rescuing Ladybugs, Inspirational Encounters with Animals That Change the World. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Peter. Thank you. I'm really honored that you asked me to be on your show. Um, and I'd like to thank both you and Lori for using your smarts uh, to educate people about the plights of animals in our world. So thank you. You inspire action, and it's a real treat for me to be here. 
Well, thank you very much. And I have been enjoying your new book very much. So tell us what motivated you to write it. Well, the truth is uh, I was working for CNN years ago, but also wanted to write a book about the Vietnam War. And I was in the country of Laos and was walking around a cultural park with a a government minder who had been assigned to me and also my boyfriend at the time. And uh, I was walking down a path and my boyfriend screamed out, don't come down this path. And of course I did. And there were bears in in metal straitjackets, basically, in, in horrific, horrific situations. Um, and one bear was had his mouth, paw in his mouth and he was rocking and he was crying. And I walked up to him and we basically telepathically connected. And I felt in that moment, I felt all of his suffering. And he reached out through the the bars and showed me his paw, you know, as if he was a child saying, look at this, look. And I looked down and there were blisters, red, uh, defined blisters all over his paw. And I asked my minder what had happened to his paw. And he uh, talked to the zookeeper and, you know, communicated in Laotian and then came back to me in English. And he said, oh, that's where people put their cigarette butts out. And from that moment, you know, John said to me, Jenny, there's nothing you can do about this. You can't save every animal in the world. But uh, it was a defining moment for me, and it was a moment that I couldn't look away from because this bear was communicating with me, and he was telling me desperately that he needed help. And so that, that for me was that moment that I couldn't look away, and also it was an enlightening moment that made me realize that, that all animals think and feel and connect and uh, just like my dogs. So I I was put on a path um, to create change there, and I worked with a communist government, and I shouldn't tell you the end of the story, but it is a happy ending, and uh, I was able, uh, working with my friends, too, helped me raise money to build the first bear sanctuary in that country, and that bear made it out of that horrific cage. So that's what started me on this path. And your publisher wants a memoir, but you've given us a a lot more than just your own story here, right? Right, right. So this was part, that's an interesting question. This was part of a two-book deal with my last book called The Divinity of Dogs. And I got so excited that I had an offer um, for a two-book deal (laughs) that I said yes. And then I realized that it was memoir, and I didn't know what to write about that would be entertaining and enlightening for people that was just about my life. So what I did was um, I took my stories Um, to begin a chapter about animals I've met in the world or situations I've seen and how I activated uh, to create change. And then I introduce you to people who I've met in my life along the way uh, who are also uh, people who had a moment of connection with a species that caused them to change their life Uh, change the world for that species. And then I make the case for how their work has changed the world for the better for all of us. Yeah, people I've met in um, really in the animal welfare movement. Explain the title Rescuing Ladybugs, if you would. You know, when we're young, our parents and and, uh, friends taught us that if we 
if a ladybug landed on you, it was good luck. And that we were to gently blow her away so that she could go back to her family. And at that time, we were being taught as young people to have empathy and compassion for the tiniest of creatures. And so for me, that that title was just perfect for this book, because every time I mention, I say rescuing ladybugs, even grown men get a smile on their face and then they say, oh, yes. And I've and it's also kind of like a, a tale known throughout the world. Uh, so it made sense to me to uh, bring attention to the fact that when we're young, we are taught empathy and compassion for all species. And this book is about people who uh, acted on that to create change. You know, often that compassion that we have as children, it's sort of squashed out of us or we're we're educated to ignore it. So it's really great that you bring that out. Well, I, I agree with you. And I think that um, we're conditioned. We, we, it, it's, a, it's this natural state for, for most people, I think. And then it is conditioned out of us because it's very hard. Um, you know, when, when you're eating meat, it's hard for uh, young people to differentiate. You know, you have, to, you have to put up boundaries and then you start to lose that. And people tell you, for instance, you know, I, I use chain dogs as a very good example. People tell you, well, it's just a dog. Leave the dog alone. Leave the dog alone. But yet your heart is always telling you that it's not right to leave that dog on that, on that chain. And it's really about how people, uh, they go through this, this box, if you will, from yeah. the time they're like seven, maybe until they're a teenager, uh, where they're being told what's right and what's wrong. And then they break out again and decide that, wait a minute, I don't want to do this to animals. I don't want to participate in this animals. Uh, that is that chain dog. It is wrong. I'm going to say something about that when they develop themselves again. So it's a bit of a process, isn't it? One of the heroes you profile is photojournalist Joanne MacArthur. Can you tell us a little about her? Yes, Joanne had an experience uh, in South America when she was in college where she was hiking and she witnessed a monkey uh, that was chained in a very in very tight confinement up against a house. And as she she decided to lift up her camera to take photos of it, to basically capture what was wrong about the situation when there were a whole bunch of tourists there taking selfies and laughing and doing just the opposite. And she realized at that moment that by photographing things that are wrong in a way that reveals just how wrong they are, she could create really um, positive change in the world. She started what she calls a project called We Animals. And We Animals is all of her photographs. She goes around the world. She, uh, she takes pictures of factory farming. She takes pictures of live transport, animals in entertainment. And she offers those photographs up for uh, campaigns of people who are doing great work in the world to create change for those animals. She's an amazing human being based in Canada. And you profile uh, 20, I believe 20 other advocates and activists, uh, plus yourself, and each one is really an amazingly inspiring story. What I like is at the end of each profile, 
you have seven questions, they're all the same, and they're answered very concisely by your people. And there's so much collective wisdom in these responses. It adds so much to the book. So I thought that was just a great idea. Thank you. Well, you know, that idea came about really from my publisher saying, you have to, if you're going to ask people, um, if you're going to have a title called Rescuing Ladybugs, you know, it has to be woven throughout the book. And I thought that's kind of hard to weave throughout the book. And so I decided to do that Q&A. But I've always loved um, vanity fairs, you know, proof survey at the end, um, asking people these amazing questions and, and you get such a kick out of it. And uh, these people are all so amazing, yet what you know of them often is really about the work that they do and not about their personal lives and um, what they choose to do even in their spare time. So it, it is a bit of a fun read, and I'm glad you liked it. We are speaking with Jennifer Skiff. The book is Rescuing Ladybugs, and holiday season is coming up. I think this book would appeal to a whole variety of people, but what I had in mind when I was reading it is like a young adult or a teen who has a little bit of twinkle in his or her eye for animals, and you lay this on them and just let them just take all this in and get really inspired. I love that. I, I love that. I'm really grateful that you said it that way. You know, I, um, I've, I'm working with a classroom, a high school class in Ohio right now, and all of the students are reading the book. And I asked them to do a survey of how they felt about animals before. And I'm really looking forward to the survey after. But I am getting so much positive feedback from them on the social media it, it, about one one um, one kid has said that they has uh, connected with their teacher and said this has put me on the path I'm going to be a veterinarian I've decided after reading this book so you're spot on I think these those are the people who um, who can create change after reading this book the book is rescuing ladybugs by Jennifer Skiff thank you so much for joining us on animals today My pleasure, Peter. Thank you so much to both you and Lori. Thank you. More with Animals Today after the break. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Thank you for listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. Now in our 10th year of consecutive weekly broadcasts, Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. And thank you for your interest and your support. Welcome back to Animals Today. Did you know that most cats don't drink enough water? And cats are so self-sufficient, we just probably assume they know when they need to drink water. But this is not always the case. And dehydration in cats can become a very big problem. Major health issues can arise if your cat doesn't get enough water in her system, including urinary stones, digestive health issues. Dehydration can cause loss of important nutrients like potassium and sodium. And fluids and electrolytes get all out of balance. 
which can lead to a potentially very serious situation for your cat. So 10 ways to get your cat to drink more water and prevent a dehydrated cat. This is from catster.com. Catster. Yeah. That's cute. And I just think this is a great list. Number one on our list, switch to a mostly wet food diet. Canned food simply has more moisture. If your cat won't eat wet food, add water or broth to dry food and see if he'll eat that. We put a tiny bit of water to our cat's favorite wet or canned food to make it like a soupy consistency and they just love it. Next, you can try putting ice cubes in your cat's food. We've personally never tried this, but I read that some cats like it and the ice can take on the food's flavor. Oh, that's interesting. I never heard of that. Let's try that. Yeah. Like that. Or try putting ice in your cat's water bowl. Some cats like icy cold water better than room temperature water, mm. and thus they might drink more of it. Okay. Serve smaller or more frequent meals. Eating prompts thirst, so smaller meals more often might entice a cat who's not drinking water to drink more. Place water bowls throughout the house. We certainly do this, don't yes, we, Peter? Yes. <laughs> we have water bowls and glasses strategically placed around our house, and I do think it encourages the cats to drink more water. And this one is an important one. Be aware of the water bowl's location. Some cats don't like the water bowl right near the food bowl, and most cats don't like the water bowl right near his litter box. For sure. Make sure the bowls are cleaned and refilled regularly. Yes, that's my job. And just like us, cats like fresh water. So obviously, regularly washing the bowls thoroughly with soap and water will keep it from getting slimy and dirty. Yep. We also use filtered water, the same water we drink, right? Nothing's too good for our cats. Mm. And also, some cats like drinking right from the faucet. We have a cat who just loves this. We just turn on the faucet for her, what, like five times a day, Peter? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Sometimes we forget to turn it Please off. Please don't admit this. But we don't forget that often. I would say she contributes to about 2 or 3% of our monthly water bill. Oh. I know some people flavor the water to entice their cats to drink more water. You can flavor it with a bit of tuna juice or low-sodium chicken broth. Cat fountains. We oh. love cat fountains. Three of our four cats drink from water fountains. It might take cats a while for them to get used to it or get the hang of it, but once they do, they love it. And the moving water is interesting to the cat, and it stays fresh too. And finally, you might want to try experimenting with different types of cat bowls. We know cats are so finicky, and it's very likely they might have a preference in terms of what the bowl is made of, glass, stainless steel, plastic, or ceramic. So great tips to help your cat drink more water and avoid the dangerous health issues that come with dehydration. Lori, speaking of cat fountains, we have been using two fabulous fountains. The dogs have discovered them also. They are from PetSafe. It's their Drinkwell line, and one of them is called Seascape, and the other is called the Pagoda. And uh, both of these are uh, plug-in fountains, and they circulate the water. They're both made out of mostly ceramic, so they're easy to clean and keep fresh. The uh, Pagoda one has the water going up a device and, and then overflowing. So there's uh, two streams going into the reservoir, which is about 70 ounce capacity. The one I really like, and in fact, I'm looking at our second one that we're just adding to the family now is uh, the Seascape one. In this device, you know, it comes with a, a little motor that's hidden and it pumps the water up through the center cylinder and it comes through and it emerges and what you get is water just in sheets coming down over this spherical element in the center of the uh, reservoir and the cats just love to lick this sphere 
They can also drink out of the basin or even drink right out of the bubbling water coming right out of the center. Uh, our dogs have discovered this one too. On the box, there's a picture of a cute little beagle enjoying it, so it's good for uh, small dogs also. Or big dogs. Or big dogs, uh, that's right. This is also part of my job is to keep these filled, and uh, once in a while you, you want to clean them, but it's not much of a, a job. They do have two filters in them, and you can uh, replace those as needed. These are the Drinkwell pet fountains from PetSafe. We just love them. And the bottom line is the cats are very interested in this. They love this. And we do think it helps them stay hydrated. Okay, Lori, what else you got there? Well, over the past several weeks, as we're walking our dogs, we're seeing more and more mushrooms or mushroom caps growing up from the grass. I remember on the show, one of my interviews with veterinarian Robert Reed, I think the topic was backyard hazards. And he mentioned a common underestimated danger to your pet which is mushroom poisoning. According to the Texas A&M University College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences, mushroom intoxication ranks near the top of the list of pet poisoning every year. And one mushroom called death cat mushrooms are the number one cause of fatal mushroom poisoning worldwide. Fatal. Hmm. So remember this, people. Allowing your dog to nibble on a mushroom on your walk can potentially kill him. And although this article goes into some of the characteristics of the death cat mushroom, including it omitting a fish-like odor when it decays, which is appealing and appetizing to dogs and cats and typically leads to their ingestion of it, the take-home message really is just keep your pets away from any mushroom, whether in your yard or on walks. But referring specifically to these death cat mushrooms, what a name, right? Dr. Justin Hines, an assistant professor at the Texas A&M College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences, states, we don't necessarily see a lot of cases that we can directly attribute to ingestion, but the development of clinical signs are usually delayed by six to 12 hours, Hines said. Initially, clinical signs are usually gastrointestinal in nature, resulting in vomiting and diarrhea, and blood may occasionally be noted in either. Heinz added that these signs will typically resolve within 24 hours. However, it's important for owners to understand that this does not mean that their pet is in the clear. Unfortunately, after about 48 to 72 hours following resolution of these signs, the patient will develop liver and kidney failure with liver failure being far more common, he said. Prognosis at this point is pretty guarded. But all mushrooms vary in toxicity, he says. Some cause self-limiting gastrointestinal distress, while others cause neurological effects such as tremors and seizures. A misidentification can lead to serious illness or death in your beloved pet. So he urges pet owners to contact their veterinarian immediately if they believe their pet has ingested any mushroom. Quote, I recommend keeping pets away from any mushroom in the yard or on walks better safe than sorry. So keep a close eye on your pet during walks, people, and remove any mushrooms that might be growing in your yard. And as always, contact your veterinarian immediately if you believe your pet has eaten anything suspicious. Scary story, Lori. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. <laughs>